Good morning, Severn Covenant. How are you? My name, thank you, Reggie. Thank you. My name is John Smart, and I am not one of your pastors. Um, but don't call security. I'm supposed to be here. Um, all of your pastors, elders, are currently on a retreat. Time of prayer, of seeking Jesus. Just from personal experience, let me say, this is such an important time to go away and to seek God, insight for the future of the church. And so please be praying for them. That really means a lot. That really matters. And so please pray that just Jesus would be speaking to them. But um, I know I see a lot of familiar faces. Um, if you don't know me, I uh, assure you I know this church. I know you because I owe a great deal to this church. Um, Lighthouse Church, which is the church that I'm a pastor at, was planted by this church back in 2000. So it just got to be too big, and uh, they uh, sent us out, commissioned us out, planted a church in Pasadena at the time called Lighthouse, and um, now we're in Glen Burnie, but this was always my home church, and so uh, from then that time, from before Lighthouse was planted, and so um, I owe a lot to this church, and not only that, but I also met my wife here, wife Mary, which is, she's somewhere in this room, I'm not sure where, it's tough with these lights, but um, we met in, uh, when we were two years old in Sunday school, um, upstairs, yeah, oh, the way I met her is because I, I bit her in the face and got kicked out of Sunday school. It turns out it's a bad idea to bite the pastor's granddaughter, who knew? Um, and, uh, you know, after that we lost contact, not sure why, but um, it wasn't until we were probably 16 at a big church picnic, all these churches came together, and I saw her sort of across the field and asked my mom, hey, who's that? And she said, oh, that's Mary Church. You bit her in the face and got kicked out of Sunday school. And I said, I can work with that. I can, that's a great icebreaker. And uh, it worked. So it's not the method I would recommend, but it worked for me. You'll either get a restraining order or, or a wife, you know? That's how it works. Um, your pastor, Ryan, is one of my very best friends. Uh, we go way back. We, uh, he's been there for me at some of the most pivotal times in my life. And I remember one time before either of us were in ministry, we were driving down the highway, down Ritchie Highway. He was uh, in the fire department. I was um, in school, and I remember asking him, you know, I don't know what to do. Should I, should I go into ministry? Or the other option was to go work for the government. That was sort of rolling around my head. I said, what should I, you know, what should I do? And I'll never forget, we're driving, and just as we're passing Carabas, he goes, Go with the feds. And so, uh, funny now that we're both pastors and I uh, didn't take that advice. So, um, so today we're going to be continuing in the series that you have been in over the past few weeks. I asked Ryan, hey, this is my first time speaking at your church. What do you want me to speak on? You know, I got a lot of passions, prayer, Holy Spirit, <clears throat> discipleship. What do you want me to speak on? He said, Could, yeah, that's great. Could you talk about how sin is like yeast? I said, are you for real? He said, yeah, that's where we're at. Okay, so that's what we're going to do. We're going to be in Mark chapter 8. And um, all kidding aside, I, I really believe God wants to speak to us from this passage today. And so um, if you're able, would you mind please standing as we read God's word? I'm going to read this block, pray, and then we're going to work through it. It says, the Pharisees came and began to question Jesus, to test him. And they asked him for a sign from heaven. He sighed deeply and said, why does this generation ask for a sign? Truly, I tell you, no sign will be given to it. And then he left them and got back into the boat and crossed to the other side. The disciples had forgotten to bring bread except for one loaf that they had with them in the boat. 
Be careful, Jesus warned them, watch out for the yeast of the Pharisees and that of Herod. They discussed this with one another and said, this is because we have no bread. Aware of their discussion, Jesus asked them, why are you talking about having no bread? Do you still see and not understand? Are your hearts hardened? Do you have eyes but fail to see and ears but fail to hear? And don't you remember when I broke the five loaves and for 5,000, how many basketfuls of pieces did you pick up? Twelve, they replied. And when I broke the seven loaves for the 4,000, how many basketfuls of pieces did you pick up? They answered, seven. And he said, do you still not understand? And so, Lord Jesus, we know your Holy Spirit is here with us this morning. You don't need our invitation, but we would ask you to be present in a special way. As we look at your word, Lord, I pray you would, uh, your word is sharper than every, any two-edged sword. I pray it would lay bare the recesses of our hearts. Um, we're not here to play games or play church or check a box. We want to have an encounter with the living God. We want to leave here changed. And we come with that prayer in confidence, knowing you love to answer prayers like that. When your people cry out to hear from you, you love to speak. And so would you speak to this incredible church um, as a family? And would you also speak to us individually? In your name we ask these things. Amen. Okay, so let's just start with some observations about this text um, to begin with. Number one, this is a little different than the series thus far that you've been working through. Thus far, the series has focused on individuals. And so it's been um, the sin of Adam and Eve, or the sin of Cain, or the sin of Jonah, or Naaman, or Saul. Now we have not an individual, now we have a group of individuals, um, namely the constant antagonist of Jesus in his ministry, the Pharisees. Um, that they were essentially the religious and moral leaders of the time. They were the good church folk of the day. Nevertheless, they rejected Jesus as the Messiah. And so with that, um, it says they came out to question Jesus. Now that sounds, that could sound a little bit, you know, mild. Maybe they had some questions or maybe they were seeking. In Greek, the language is much stronger. It says came out in Greek is a military term. And so it's like a Roman legion coming out to do battle. And so they come out to question Jesus. This isn't, you know, they're seeking and, hey, Rabbi, what do you think about this? No, they're trying to trap him in his words. And their demand or their question is, show us a sign. Show us a sign to validate the things you're teaching and that you are the Messiah. Now, what's interesting about this, that they're demanding a sign, is that Jesus has already given them signs. In the previous passage, he's taken a few loaves of bread and he's fed 4,000 people. In the following passage, he's going to open the eyes of a blind man. And so it's not like Jesus hasn't done anything. So their demand for a sign is not sincere. All they're doing is they're looking for anything and everything to reject Jesus. They are persisting in a spirit of entrenched unbelief. They don't want to believe in Jesus, and they're determined not to believe in Jesus. In fact, just to show the extent they were willing to go to, in John chapter 12, Jesus performs one of the greatest miracles uh, outside his own resurrection, which is he raises Lazarus from the dead. And the religious leaders, if they were sincere, they would go, oh, okay, man, this guy must be legit. We need to look into this. Let's see what's going on. Instead, their response, Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead, and their response is, now we're going to have to kill Lazarus too. They're so, their hearts are so hardened, it doesn't matter what Jesus does or says, they will persist in unbelief. Now, up till this point, I don't know if anybody actually stands on this little pirate's plank here, but um, up until this point, 
<laughs> exactly. <laughs> Up until this point, it'd be very easy to go, oh, those Pharisees. Thank goodness we don't have to deal with that anymore. Thank goodness the Pharisees aren't around anymore. Thank goodness we don't have to worry about being a Pharisee and we can just go about our business. Except Jesus then gets into the boat with his disciples and he tells his disciples, beware the leaven, beware the yeast of the Pharisees and of Herod. What's interesting is there was something happening in the Pharisees' hearts that even those who were literally closest to Jesus, closer to Jesus than anyone on earth, also had to be aware of. Which means you and I also have, there's something for us, as closely as we may be following Jesus, there's something also for us to take heed of here. So what is the, in the ancient world, um, leaven, yeast, was a euphemism for corruption, for decay, for moral decay, moral decline. So what is Jesus saying? He's saying, beware the sin of the Pharisees. What is the sin of the Pharisees? Well, it's a hard heart. It's entrenched unbelief. It's the, re the re complete rejection of Jesus. But in my opinion, Jesus isn't zeroing in necessarily on the sin of the Pharisees. He's zeroing, it, zeroing in on sin in general. And he's communicating something when he compares sin to leaven. He's communicating something about how sin operates in all of our lives, not just how it tended to operate specifically for the Pharisees or for Herod. One of the reasons I think that is because the Pharisees and Herod were totally different. Pharisees were religious leaders. They were devout to the law. Herod was very secular. He was not a religious leader in any sense of the way. And Jesus says, beware both of their leaven. Meaning, I take that to mean, I'm talking about sin in general. Whether it's a religious sin, whether it's a secular sin, whatever it would be, Jesus is communicating something about how sin operates in our heart. And I think there's at least two things. Number one. Sin spreads. One of the greatest lies of the enemy to you and I is that sin will just sort of stay contained wherever it finds itself. So um, a couple years ago, I don't know if you guys remember this little year called 2020. There's some wacky things that happened in 2020. One of the wackiest was the sourdough craze that swept through the nation. Anybody remember this? Did anybody partake in this, the sourdough craze? Okay, no brave souls. There we go. Thank you so much. I appreciate that. This is a safe, safe place. Um, everybody got swept up in sourdough. Everybody from like, you know, uh, uh, people that you would expect, you know, uh, the crunchy folks to like college bros. Everybody was like trying to do sourdough. And the way you do sourdough is you have a starter, which is a little bit of dough mixed with yeast, that then you mix into the rest of the lump of dough and it spreads. That was, this was known in the ancient world as the yeast spreads. It eats the sugar in the bread, which then converts it into carbon dioxide. It fills up. That's why bread rises. Happy second grade science lesson for you. But what they knew was leaven, the reason why it was sort of a euphemism for moral corruption is because it spread. It contaminated other things. And in the same way, sin will not stay contained in one area of our lives. The great lie is, oh, sin will stay there if you leave it there. That is not the case. In fact, oftentimes, the attempt to contain sin, rather than confess it openly or deal with it directly, the attempt to contain sin leads to a greater disaster. April 14th, 1912. Anybody know why that date is significant? Great job. Wow, right away. 
you were ready for that. You should go on Jeopardy. <coughs> the Titanic, April 14th, 1912. Also, April 14th is my birthday. So just keep that in mind. You have a few months to get ready for it. But the reason why we remember that date is not only the tragic loss of life, but also the fact that that ship was deemed unsinkable. And the reason why it was deemed unsinkable is because below deck there were 16 watertight compartments that could be sealed in the event of an emergency. And so they thought, because we can contain it, the ship cannot be sunk. So April 14, 1912, the ship strikes the iceberg and six of the 16 watertight containment fill with water. Problem is, they were all in the back of the boat. So the, bottom, the back of the Titanic sank while the front raised out of the water and it cracked in the middle. So because of that containment system, the Titanic actually sank much faster than it would have had it been structured like a normal boat where the weight would have been evenly distributed. Why do I say that? Because in the same way, the, the attempt to constrain and contain sin in our heart always leads to disaster because sin leaks. It doesn't just stay in one area. We've seen this over this series. Cain was bewildered. Why was my anger against my brother, why would that affect my relationship with God? Because sin spreads. Saul couldn't understand why a refusal to um, obey Samuel resulted in his loss of the kingdom. Because sin spreads. Naaman couldn't understand, okay, why is my pride affecting my healing? Because sin spreads. And in the same way, sin will spread in our lives if it's not addressed. It'll spread in your heart. It'll spread in my heart. As a pastor, tragically, I often sit with people either for prayer or for counseling or for cleanup after a tragedy where people are bewildered that their sin has spread throughout their whole life. Why, wait a second. Why, why would my affair affect my relationship with my kids? That doesn't make any sense because it spreads. Wait, why would my, why would my anger affect my friendships in my community because sin spreads? Why, why would my addiction affect my relationship with my spouse? Because sin will not stay contained. And the inclination that it will is alive from the pits of hell. Sin, like leaven, spreads. But not only that, sin also grows beneath the surface. So when you work that sort of piece of uh, starter into a loaf of, a lump of dough, initially there's no change. You can't tell, you couldn't discern that something is growing beneath the surface. It takes time. This is why one pastor uh, said it like this, sin starts subtly, but it ends suddenly. So it sort of grows beneath the surface, and you think you can manage it, and we think we could handle it, and before we know it, man, there's consequences and it's got us. So, 2013, um, there was a 425-pound, sorry, 2003, 425-pound tiger named Ming who was found in an apartment in New York City. There's a picture of him. Um, Ming was purchased by a man named Antoine Yates. Mr. Yates purchased him when he was a couple weeks old, took him back to his house, nurtured him, take, took care of him, fed him, um, by the time he was that big, uh, Yates was feeding him 20 pounds of raw chicken a day. And the way they found out that uh, the, the guy had a tiger in his apartment is it attacked him. It got his shoulder, it got his leg, he went to the ER, and they said, what happened? He said, my pit bull bit me. They said, hey, buddy, 
<laughs> I've seen a lot of pit bull bites. I haven't seen anything like that. So they went to investigate, and this is the NYPD uh, tranquilizing Ming, right? Ming, uh, he didn't take very kindly to tranquilizing, as you can tell in this picture. It took about six people to get him out of the apartment. They relocated him. He lived happily ever after. They also found a six-foot alligator in the apartment. Yeah, Mr. Yates had something going on in there. Why do I tell that story? Because how cute do you think, let's just use our imagination here, how cute do you think a three-week-old tiger is? Pretty cute, right? But its eyes are closed, like cats do, walking into stuff. Adorbs might be the word I would use to describe it. I'm not sure if you use that type of language around here, but... And then it grew, and then he fed it more, and fed it more, and fed it more, and then eventually, this thing that started so cute became a man-eater. And in the same way, sin starts cute until it mauls you. It starts cute, it starts, hey, it's just a, ta it's just a text to an old flame. It's just a message on Facebook. It's just lunch. Can't two people get lunch? And it's an affair. It's just, hey, I, yeah, I have a little bit of a, you know, maybe I drink a little bit too much, but it's not really a problem. I do some things, say some things I regret. Everybody thinks it's funny. And then it's not. And then it costs you your career. It could be, I, I, it's anger. You know, yeah, I get some, I get angry. I don't hit anybody. I wouldn't hurt anybody, but... You know, maybe I yell at people, but I always apologize, you know. I can manage it until you can't. Sin, your sin and my sin, it starts cute until it mauls us. It starts subtly. It ends suddenly. This is why Pastor Paul, I don't think he came up with this saying, but uh, he would always say it. Sin will always take you further than you want to go, keep you longer than you want to stay cost you more than you wanted to spend. Why? Because it grows beneath the surface, and before you realize it, what was so cute and manageable, now it's controlling you. You thought you were in control of it. You thought it served you. Actually, you serve it. We've seen that over and over again in faces of sin, something that could have been dealt with, but it became a monster in its own right. And this leads to an interesting side note. Why does God hate sin? Sometimes, you know, in culture, if you were to ask people in culture, why does God hate sin? They'd probably, something to the effect of, ah, because God doesn't like fun. He doesn't want you to have a good time, and so he just looks for people having fun and gives them malaria. He hates fun. He can't stand it. That's not the story of the Bible at all. God created wine and parties and laughter and sex and pleasure. And God, God created fun. The reason why God hates sin is because sin hurts people, and God loves people. So why is Jesus warning his disciples to say, beware the leaven of the Pharisees? It's not because he's trying to suck the fun out of their life. It's because he's trying to warn them the way God warned Cain, sin is crouching at your door, and it seeks to master you, but you must master it. It's because he's a God of love, he warns us about the sin that may lurk in our own heart. So, um, what do we do with this? Um, the tension that I arrived at in putting this message together is everything that I've said thus far could kind of be said about the kingdom of heaven 
what I'm not the mauling part, but what I mean is the kingdom of heaven starts small and then spreads. Jesus said it's like a mustard seed. It's like the smallest seed in the garden that grows into the biggest tree. The kingdom of heaven, it's not always sort of evident on the outside. God, man looks on the outside, but God looks on the heart. So it's not always clear what's happening in someone's heart. It grows, God's spirit works beneath the surface. So how do we know that what's happening in our heart, what's growing in our heart, is the kingdom of God or sin? How do we know, going back to a quote that uh, Pastor Ryan used a few weeks ago from C.S. Lewis, how do we know that that center part of us is becoming more and more a creature of heaven and not more and more a creature of hell? C.S. Lewis said, every decision you make, a thousand decisions in a day, is turning you more and more into a godly creature or a hellish creature. How do you know which direction you're going? Well, as we get ready to wrap up, I just have three sort of introspective questions that we can ask ourselves to think through what is growing in my heart. So here we go. Number one, am I assuming or am I asking? Meaning, am I assuming I think I know what's going on in my heart? Yeah, I know my sin. Yeah, I know my problem. Yeah, I know what's going on. Or am I asking in humility, God, please show me what's going on in my heart? It's in humility that David says the following in Psalm 139. Search me, God. This is one of, hear me, this is one of the most daint scary, but also healthy prayers that you can pray. Search me, God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there is any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. You know what David is saying? I don't even know my own heart. Why? Jeremiah says, the heart is abundantly wicked, deceptively wicked. Who can know it? So God, you show me what's happening in my heart. Reveal to me what's going on. Reveal, if there's any sin, if there's any offensive way, show me, God. I have a, uh, a very uh, benign heart condition where every now and then I'll get this thing where it, it's, they're called PVCs, where my heart will like skip a beat and then an extra hard beat will kind of like catch up. Um, it's, it, sometimes it happens, you know, once a day, sometimes it happens over and over and over again. Um, but it's not a problem. I've been to the cardiologist so many times. I'm always the youngest person in the cardiologist's office. They're always like, are you lost? And I'm like, no, I got that thing. So um, I've done stress tests. I've worn monitors. I've done, they've put all the diodes all over me. Um, we've done the echocardiogram, the sonogram of the heart. We've done the whole thing. And they... They, they've concluded, hey, it's, it's benign, it's a, it's a nuisance, it's not a problem. But it's very different to walk into an expert's office and into a cardiologist's office and have them actually look at your heart. That's far different than me going, mm, what's it feel like is going on in there? Feels like it's skipping a beat. Feels like this is happening. Feels like that's one thing. It's an entirely different thing to walk into an expert's office and him go, let me show you what's happening in your heart. Let me show you the valves. Let me show you where the blood's flowing. Let me show you your heart rate. Let me, show you all, let me show you what's happening in your heart. In Psalm 139, David goes, I'm tired of guessing. God, show me what's going on. God, be, let your Holy Spirit be my heart monitor and tell me if sin is lurking in my heart and where it is and how I should address it. So we can assume, yeah, I think I got it. That's arrogance and hubris and a recipe for disaster. Or we can go, God, please show me because he's a good father, and because he loves us, he'll answer that prayer. This is what's going on in your heart. Second question, 
to ask, to determine what's going on. Am I containing or am I confessing? Am I containing or am I sort of trying to contain sin and mitigate and manage and build walls or am I dragging it into the light and confessing it? Um, does anybody here like kabucha? Anybody? Okay, yeah. A few timid hands. I can't stand it. I'm going to be honest to you. God bless you that can drink it. I'm sure you have a great um, microbiome going on. Um, I can't do it. But uh, a couple friends of ours, some of you may know the Freemans, Jesse and Becca. Uh, Becca really liked kabucha and was going to make her own. And so to make your own kabucha, you start with a scoby, which is a ball of bacteria and yeast. Okay? If, I'm just going to say, if your drink starts with a ball of bacteria and yeast, that's, I think that's God trying to tell you, I don't think this is the way to go, pal. Like, shouldn't drink it. Um, so anyway, she's making her own kabucha. And it has to be in like a dark room. And so she has it in this dark, like their guest room. And she doesn't tell Jesse about it. So Jesse comes home from work. And he like goes in to put his bag in the room, turns the light on. And she runs up and turns the light off. And she goes, no, no, no. It likes it dark. <laughs> and he's like, what likes it dark? Like, is this stranger things? Like, what is happening? And so it likes, it grows in the dark. Yeast grows in the dark. In the same way sin thrives on darkness and isolation. It loves to be, don't talk about it, don't confess it, don't bring it to the surface. This is why Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who was a leader of the German resistance against the Third Reich, when the church sort of abdicated their responsibility, he led some courageous church leaders against Hitler. Dietrich Bonhoeffer said, sin demands to have a man by himself. It withdraws him from community. The more isolated a person is, the more destructive will be the power of sin over him. Sin wants to remain unknown. It shuns the lights. In the darkness of the unexpressed, it poisons the whole being of a person. It likes the dark. So the solution then is to drag it into the light through confession. Confession is telling God, here's what I'm struggling with. I know you know, but I'm bringing it to your attention. I confess and repent. And confession is getting people who love you and love Jesus and saying, here's where I'm at and here's what I'm struggling with. To drag it into the light. It is so counterintuitive in a culture that would say, just deal with it. Don't bring anybody else into it. You can handle this. But sunlight is the best disinfectant. And to drag sin into the light, it loses its power. It loses the power that it draws from darkness and isolation and unknown. It loses its force and it loses its strength. Sometimes there's this idea that the more you follow Jesus, the less you should confess. Actually, the exact opposite is true. Because the more you follow Jesus, the more you see your own heart. And the more you realize how deep sin goes. So if you get, let's say, you're not a Christian, let's say you used to like get drunk and then fight outside the bar. All right? Then you get saved, and, and that stops, hopefully. But you realize, and hey, maybe I don't fight outside the bar anymore, but I still kind of break people around me verbally. And then you go a layer deeper, and you go, man, inside me there's all this anger, and there's all this insecurity, and there's all this sort of, these things just sort of surge to the surface. And then you go one step deeper, and you go, oh, man, I have all these things in my life that I want way more than God. I have all these things in my life that I think I need more than God. And when I don't get them, it makes me really angry. And I have this entitlement like Cain. I have this pride like Naaman. And it's, there's all these things that are surging in my heart that, 
the Bible calls idols. And what you realize is fighting outside the bar was just the tip of the iceberg. Sin goes all the way down. That's just the symptom. And the more you walk with Jesus, the more, because he loves us, he will excavate the layers of our heart to say, here's what's actually going on in there. It's not just the sin. It's not just that. Here's the idols that, that tempt you to worship them rather than me. And that's where everything stems from. So the more you walk with Jesus, the more we become aware of what's actually happening in our heart. And the more we confess. This is why Martin Luther, in his famous 95 theses that he nailed to the castle wall, the very first one, all of life is repentance. You never get away from it. Because the more you walk, until we see him face to face, the more we walk with him, the more he holds up a mirror to our own heart and we realize the depth that sin goes to. So am I containing, let me contain, let me contain, let me contain, or am I confessing to God and to other people? James 5 says, um, confess your sins one to another that you may be healed. And theologians will debate, is that physical healing or spiritual healing? It's both. Both come from confessing to people who love God and love us. It's great to confess to God. Jesus is our mediator, but sometimes confessing to a flesh and blood person in front of us and hearing them say, hey, God's with you in this, it just carries a whole different level of power. So, am I confessing or containing? And then lastly, am I casual or am I crucifying? Paul, to the church of Galatia, says the following, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. What Paul's saying is the fruit of walking with God is everything he just lifted, listed, love, joy, peace, patience. And who wouldn't want that? I mean, in a culture as anxious as ours, who wouldn't want peace? In a culture as, as angry and as spun up as ours, man, who wouldn't want joy? In a culture just as, as uh, despondent as ours, who wouldn't want just that steadfastness to keep moving? Everybody would want that. But the price that we pay for that, to some degree, comes in the next verse where it says, those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Flesh in, in the Bible, sometimes it means just your body, but in this case, it means the sinful desires of our old nature. So what he's saying is, we've crucified those, that this isn't sort of casual. This isn't, um, okay, let me just maybe set some standards and set some boundaries. This is, the battle against sin is all-out war. And if we're casual, we'll become a casualty quickly. So uh, last weekend at Lighthouse was a beautiful, beautiful weekend. We had a baptism service, and um, for whatever reason, it just sort of hit me like the first baptism service that I had seen. And so I know you do baptism services here. You know what I'm talking about, but it was, it was unbelievable. And there was this little boy who got baptized. He was about eight years old. He got baptized, and it was a really beautiful moment. I don't know why. Really young kids and really old people are the ones who get me. That makes me cry. And so um, this kid got baptized, and I was talking to his mom afterwards. She's a mom of four. And what was amazing is uh, she had the best news that I had heard all morning, probably all, all year maybe, where a couple months ago she had been diagnosed with stage four cancer. But as of her latest scan, she was disease-free. 
And so she's sitting there with her little boy who just got baptized and her three other kids standing next to her and her husband standing next to her. And she's sharing this news. And it was amazing. But I know that she had been doing treatment. And um, she hadn't been doing chemo. She'd been doing this immunotherapy. And I asked her, how's the treatment been? And she said, it's been rough. She said, it's been really rough. She said, I have a few treatments left, and then we're done. But hopefully then we're done. But it's, it's been difficult. But what I, not even for a second, I didn't even have to ask her, was it worth it? Are you glad you did it? Because here she is standing with her boy baptized and her beautiful family. And it, it, was, it was like a, this heavenly scene. That, yeah, the treatment was difficult, but the payoff was unbelievable. Can I tell you, the same is true of our battle against sin. Nobody cuts a deal with cancer. Nobody goes, hey, the cancer can have this part, but I, you know, just don't spread. Sin and cancer spread. It'll take over our whole body. So the only option is all-out warfare. But it is so worth it to walk in the freedom that Jesus has purchased for us. I'm going to ask the worship team to come back up. And as they do, let me uh, say this. What I don't want to do is I don't want to leave uh, here with anybody being discouraged. Challenged, that would be great. Convicted, hey, that's what the Holy Spirit does. But discouraged, I don't want to leave here with that. Like, okay, man, we're talking about sin. And, and, and now on top of everything else I have going on, now I got to fight sin, but I got kids, and I got work, and I got school, and I got this, or I got grandkids, and I have all these things going on. And now, okay, the pastor put something else on top of me, which is fighting sin. Here's what I want you to know from the bottom of my heart. You, we are not in this battle alone. That the Holy Spirit is, if you are a follower of Jesus, the Holy Spirit is in you right now. And he enables us to fight that battle. He enables us to actually stand up. Jesus right now, let this blow your mind. At this second, Jesus, the Son of God, is at the right hand of the Father praying for you. He's your advocate. He's your friend. He's your big brother in heaven. That now, even as we wrestle through our days and fight the wages, wage the war against sin, God himself, the Son, is praying for you. Jesus promised, he promised, I have come that they would have life and life to the full. Hear me. Jesus would not promise that if it wasn't actually on the table, which means victory over sin is possible. That what Jesus is praying for you right now, he's claiming everything that his blood purchased for you on the cross. Forgiveness, righteousness, freedom, peace. He's claiming those things for you and I. And he's not asking, like, can I please have it? He purchased it. It's his. His blood paid for it, which means it is ours as rightful heirs of the kingdom of heaven. So we can do this. The fruit of the Spirit really is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. It's really on offer. Will it take work? Of course it will. Anything in life that's worth having takes work. Anything that's worthwhile takes effort. But Jesus told his disciples, and he tells us this morning, greater is him who is in you than he who is in the world. It's through the Holy Spirit that we demolish strongholds. It's through the Holy Spirit that God makes us brand new. And that power is available. See, what our sin would tell us, and why this can be a little bit of a scary topic, 
as our sin would tell us, you can't, you can't ask God what's in your heart. You're going to be discouraged. And you can't confess your sin to God or, heaven forbid, for other people. You'll lose your reputation. You'll, you'll lose your standing. They'll, they'll never look at you the same. You can't crucify your sin. That'll take all the fun out of your life. But you know what's really on the other side of asking, confessing, and crucifying? It's everything we want. It's joy, and it's peace, and it's freedom, and it's on offer right here, right now. If you're carrying something, maybe you carried a burden here, please don't leave that without getting with someone, one of the, one of the small group leaders or um, Pastor Jack or someone that maybe you look up. I'll be up front here. There's something you're carrying. Please don't leave here carrying it out. God wants to set you free. And so let me pray for us, and then we're going to end in a time of worship. And the worship song so corresponds with this. I'm sure you did that on purpose. Um, you have a great worship team here and worship leader. But let me pray for us. Jesus, I pray for myself and I pray for my brothers and sisters in this room. You came to set the captives free. And that's a great churchy line, but we're standing on that truth right now. And so, Lord, if there's anything that has kept us from you, I pray you'd show it to us. I pray you'd help us confess it, help us drag it into the light. I pray you'd give us courage courage to look squarely at our sin and pull it into the light that it would wither and lose its power. Lord, give us strength to crucify the desires of the flesh that lead us away from you. Lord, all of life is repentance. And in your eyes, we're, we're just beginners. We're just children. And so we know when you look at us, there's so much grace and there's so much, let's try this one more time. And there's so much, hey, I'm with you. Lord, help us to take the next right step you're calling us to. Help us not leave here burdened if we came here burdened. Help us to walk here in the freedom that you bought for us. So I pray for this church. I pray for an incredible church, make an incredible impact with an amazing history. Lord, would you meet us where we're at right now? Your word says that you draw near to those who draw near to you. As we take this step forward in faith, would you meet us in freedom? In your name, amen.